If you've been with us for um, the last few weeks, you know that we've been in a series called Reasonable Objections. It's, uh, you know, for skeptics, for people who are a little bit skeptical about faith, a little bit skeptical about uh, Jesus, and have pretty legitimate concerns, <laughs> like things that you've heard about, um, you know, faith that you're like, whoa, no, that's not, that's, that can't be right. Uh, so we talked about science and faith, we talked about uh, sexuality, we talked about hypocrisy, we talked about genocide, Ooh, we talked about something else. Oh, the Bible, yeah, I keep forgetting that one. We talked about the, whether or not the Bible is trustworthy. So we talked about some, cool, some interesting stuff. We're, uh, but today we're going to hit the big one. Uh, we, we saved the, the most fun for last, uh, so we're going to talk about Eternal damnation. Hell! Awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah, so for skeptics, this is probably the single most like offensive and horrible thing that Christians teach. Um, I think I have the, the, uh, the objection. Hell is a ridiculous idea from backwards cultures. No loving God could possibly send people into an eternity of misery. Uh, yeah, it's like, I mean, it's one thing, you know, so last week we talked about genocide, and, and that's horrible enough. Um, but I, I hope that we saw, like, the kind of the logic behind what God's doing in that. Uh, God, you know, is so worried about the evil that's expanding that he, he wipes it out to protect um, Israel to protect uh, this, and it's very rare. It's like not something that God does very often. It's a very localized. You know, this is something where when God, God's last resort, basically, God, loving, gracious God, is willing to get His hands dirty, but only in extremis, only at the at the very end. Like this is there's no other way to go about this. That's that's hard enough for people to swallow. Uh, for skeptics, especially, you find the idea of hell absolutely abhorrent. Uh, the idea that, I mean, because, well, the idea being like, well, we know what hell is, right? We have this idea of hell. It's like there's, it's this, uh, it's this burning lake. It's a lake filled with fire and people are put there and they're lit on fire for eternity. Wow. Well, we're a Bible church, so, um, each week we try to see what the Bible actually says about stuff. So today we're going to look um, at a text that deals very directly with um, eternal punishment. And uh, I think maybe we're going to see something that's surprising both for, if you're, for a skeptic, you'd be like, wait, this is not the hell that I was told about. And, and if you're a, a believer, you might think, whoa, whoa, this, is not, this isn't exactly what I had envisioned. Maybe there's something a little different going on here. And hopefully I think uh, the goal here is to sort of make sense of what the Bible actually does say about um, hell. So here we go. This is uh, a text from Luke. Uh, amazing text. Incredible. Uh, starting in verse 19 of chapter 16. There was a certain rich man who clothed himself in purple and fine linen and who feasted luxuriously every day. At his gate lay a certain poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. Lazarus longed to eat the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Instead, dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. While being tormented in the place of the dead, and look at that, he shouted, oh, I'm sorry, he looked up and saw Abraham at a distance with Lazarus at his side. He shouted, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm suffering in this flame. 
But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received good things, whereas Lazarus received terrible things. Now Lazarus is being comforted, and you are in great pain. Moreover, a great crevasse or crevice has been fixed between us and you. Those who wish to cross over from here to you cannot, neither can anyone cross from there to us. The rich man said, I beg you then, Father, send Lazarus to my, to my dad's house. I've got five brothers. Lazarus needs to warn them so that they don't come to this place of agony. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the Old Testament, we might say. They should listen to, to them. The rich man said, no, Father Abraham. If someone from the dead goes to them, they'll change their hearts and lives. Abraham said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, then neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. So, yikes. Because uh, first, um, rich man. <laughs> <That's>, uh-oh. Because <laughs> we do, oh man, is he talking to us? I hope this isn't about us. Interesting fact, you know who Jesus is, talk, is telling this, this story to? Is um, the religious conservatives. It's the Pharisees. It's like he's, he's, he's saying, this is you guys. He's equating the rich man to um, the Pharisees. Uh, it, it says that the Pharisees loved money. And so Jesus like balls them out for a couple of, of sentences and, and, and just lays into them. And then he tells them this as sort of like an exclamation point. To be like, you guys, you think that you're, you're set. You think you've got everything figured out. You think you know God. You think you know how to live. Guess what? You're this guy. This rich man. Uh, the, and the description is crazy. Purple and fine linen. In the ancient world, the, the two most expensive pieces of clothing were uh, white, white linens. Uh, because it was very hard to make things white in the ancient world. They didn't have, um, you know washing machines. Moreover, the dye for purple uh, was extra- extravagantly expensive. And so the only, the, the, his, he's described as having purple over white. This is the same outfit that the emperor wore every day. Okay, th- This guy isn't just rich. He's obscenely rich. Uh, feasted luxuriously there. Uh, that's euphrino in the Greek. It's, uh, it's really more like um, how to party. He partied every day. So, Kiss, party every day, rock and roll all night, party every day. This guy is from Kiss. He's ace freely. Um, and, and what partying means in the ancient world is not just like, you know, eating well and drinking well. It's hosting people, okay? So this guy's so wealthy that every single day he invites all kinds of people to come hang out with him and to eat his food. He missed one guy. Like right there. Check this out. This guy, Lazarus is laying at his gate. Lazarus's legs don't work. He's disabled. He's crippled. And he's covered with sores because he has no shelter. He's laying out, uh, and we could think of the gate as like this long you know, gate up to the, ma- the mansion, right? And at the edge of it, there's this guy. Why is he planted there? Because this is where the good foot traffic is. Every single day, rich people and well-to-do people are coming into this gate to party with this guy. And he's sitting there being like, hey, help! Uh, the, the, the sores, um, we might think that the dogs licking the sores would be a good thing. No. These were roving bands of, of, of animals. And the reason it's mentioned is because Lazarus is so hungry, he just wants some leftovers from the meal. But when it's thrown out into the garbage, these wild dogs go and they eat it. So Lazarus doesn't get any. 
And then they come and they abuse him. They make him ritually impure. They make him really, really gross by, like, you know, being in contact with him. I was trying to think of a 21st century analog to the rich man. I've never been able to do it until the last couple of weeks. Um, I started watching the Toronto Raptors. Uh, when it became, it became clear that they were going to, either them or the Milwaukee Bucks were going to be, uh, you know, facing the Lord's chosen team, uh, the Golden State Warriors, in the NBA championships. And I started watching, and they kept showing this one guy who wasn't even playing. He's on the sidelines of the Raptors and their home games. And he's running around, and he's, like, shouting at players. I have a couple of pictures of him. His name is Drake. Drake, apparently, I'd never seen, I'd heard about him before, but Drake has his own airplane. It's called Air Drake. You can see it there. Uh, he has his own Ferrari. He has many, many cars. And the thing that really put me over the edge was uh, last, at the very first game of the finals, um, sweet, sweet golden child, Stephen Curry, um, just God's gift to basketball, really in the world. Uh, and Steph Curry was walking by the bench, and Drake started yelling at him. And at that point, I could no longer ignore him. And he is, there, I, I hate many celebrities. He is now the one I hate the most. And if any of you are ever caught listening to or Drake or following anything that he does, I will punch you in the neck. That's how this works. He is awful. Uh, Drake, Drake, um, Drake's kind of like that rich man. He's so flashy, so, I think he's a musician. I don't know what he does. He's probably in movies too. Who, I mean, gosh, wow, okay. Hopefully no Drake fans here today. Uh, um, he, he, he's just awful in the sense that he has so much, right? And would it, really, would it really be that bad to just throw Lazarus like a bone? I mean, it would be a fraction of Drake's massive fortune to just get the guy some shelter. He passes by him all the time. Everybody in the town comes to this place except the one guy who needs it most. An interesting, I don't want you to miss this in the text. Go, go back to the text. This is, this is interesting. So we're, we're encouraged to see that in every scene of this story, like Lazarus is over here and Drake is way over here. They never, okay, I'll stop. The rich man is over here. Never the twain shall meet. They're, they're separated by this massive distance. So there's at his gate. Then uh, it goes on when, when, uh, when the rich man finds himself in Hades. Uh, the next, next, don't I have another? Yeah, text, right? Uh, so the poor man died carried by angels, right? He goes up this way. Um, whereas the rich man goes down and he's buried, right? So there's this massive uh, distance. And then it literally says, at a distance, he sees Abraham with Lazarus at his side. These guys are so far apart. They're, they're far apart, not just physically, but in everything about them. They, they, they are the exact opposite human beings. And what we're encouraged to think from this is that you've got Lazarus, who apparently is, is doing well. I mean, God seems to like Lazarus. Angels carry him when he finally dies. God seems to be on Lazarus' side. He puts him next to, to Abraham, the, the sort of the first um, Hebrew person. They, they're hanging out together in, in a good version of the afterlife, right? So pre- presumably Lazarus is the kind of person who has, well, he's had to, he's had to what? Depend on God. He's had nothing. If, if he certainly couldn't depend on the rich guy. Couldn't depend on the rich guy's friends. He had to depend on God his whole life. And we're encouraged to then think that the rich man is the, the exact opposite of that. That whatever it is that's about God, whatever, whatever, whoever God is and whatever God has done, the rich guy is like the absolute 
opposite. And not only is he the opposite, he hates it. I mean, come on. We're, we're, we're painting a pretty stark picture here. We're really encouraged to kind of look at the rich man and be like, I mean, who's going to look at this guy and go, oh, what a, what a winner. I mean, he's kind of, he kind of comes off like Hitler. Right? Like, he's really, really bad. And the idea being, and this is the next thing, or first thing in your note sheets, uh, oh, yeah, right. So, so you've got the, 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 the poor man who's, like, praying, you know, and then you got Air Drake, never the twain shall meet, and that leads to the first thing in your note sheets. The rich man is painted as being at his core fundamentally opposed to God. Opposed to God. And I would say that um, the way that the New Testament thinks about um, the afterlife is that the bad afterlife is really for people who, at their core, are just against what God's about. They just know. They're, they're the ones whose lives are, whether they know it or not, they're looking at the kind of being that God is, God graciously loving, endlessly self-giving, all those things, and they're saying no to that. And they're saying yes to something else. Uh, we, we need to keep, go back to the text. Um, this is very important because we need to sort of look at a little bit what the New Testament kind of describes um, hell. Uh, first off, being tormented in the place of the dead. In this text, uh, the word that's being translated there, place of the dead, is Hades. Hades is the Greco-Roman sort of version of the afterlife. Um, so it's, it's not native to, uh, to Jewish thinking. Uh, the New Testament uses lots of different terms to describe uh, the bad afterlife. Um, Gehenna, uh, hell, and Hades. It's not super clear if these are like kind of different phases. Like some people think that what's going on here is before Jesus comes back, if you die, you're sent to like a waiting place. This would be like Hades maybe. Uh, some people think that. I'm not convinced of that. I'm not sure of that, but that's very possible. Um, whatever the case, if there is this waiting place, it's a, it's a preview of what's to come, right? And here it's not real good for this guy. He's, uh, he's suffering in this flame. The New Testament does use uh, flame and fire language quite a bit to describe hell, but that's not all the New Testament uses. I'd like to give you uh, just some examples of the different types of ways that the bad afterlife is described. And I'm doing this because we do have in our minds a caricature which we've inherited from our post-Christian culture, of what hell looks like. Like I said, everyone's on fire. And you could, okay, right. If you see number three there, lake of fire, Revelation 21.8 does describe um, hell that way. It's also described as eternal destruction, being away from God's presence. Uh, that's Paul. It's uh, described as a furnace where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's some disagreement about whether or not that particular text is hell, but maybe. Uh, chains of darkness, Second Peter 2.4. Uh, utter darkness, Jude, thir- Jude 13. A beating uh, delivered from a master to a, a wicked or evil servant in Luke 12. You will notice that, uh, that at least some of this, and I would say probably most of this, has to be in some way metaphorical, right? Because you can't have fire without light, and yet hell is being described as a place of utter darkness, um, so there's some, there's some way that we have to make sense of that. That's difficult to do. Again, chains of darkness. Hard to know what to make of that. Uh, how can darkness uh, chain you? Um, I would say probably the most direct uh, description there is being away from God's presence. Whatever hell is, it's where God is not. Okay? 
Moreover, you have uh, your, the, sort of the caricature notion of hell is, you know, there's like demons like poking people as they're screaming. Uh, it's interesting, the way the New Testament talks about it is in some ways very intuitive. And I have uh, a, a picture here to describe another interesting way that the New Testament talks about hell. In the top left, you have what will almost certainly be my son in about three, three years, uh, painting his face with markers. Naughty kid, right? And uh, so that's that. Then uh, you have Olivia in the bottom left when she turns 17. Uh, she's smoking a cigarette, double nose piercing. Ooh! I'm not that stressed out by nose piercings, but okay, I get it. On the right, you have a carjacker. All three of these pictures describe people who probably need a little bit of punishment. It does seem pretty intuitive, though, to suggest that whatever is going to happen to the carjacker is going to be a lot worse than what happens to the kids, right? And there's a lot of things that go into that. Uh, when you're younger, you're not as culpable, you're not as responsible, you're not an adult yet, right? Um, whereas by the time, you know, you're jacking cars, you probably, you know what's right and wrong, but you're, you're going after it anyway. Um, so there's an element of culpability, there's an element of the severity of the crime, right? I mean, smoking a cigarette uh, while not good for you, is probably not as bad as taking someone's car. Interestingly, uh, throughout the New Testament, um, and Jesus, uh, when, he, when Jesus talks about uh, lasting punishment, he over and over suggests that, um, that there are varying degrees of punishment. Like, he over and over says things like, like look, you guys think that you're going you're gonna to have it way worse than these guys over here because you really should be doing better. Right? He'll say things like that. Uh, he has an example where um, there's, there's a, he's telling a story and there's a servant that doesn't uh, know what was right or wrong. And he's like, look, that guy's not going to get nearly as bad as you. You knew what to do and you did the wrong thing any, anyway. You're in trouble, man. All this to say that, you know, when we're talking about hell, you need to recognize that what the Bible actually says is way different than what, A, Christians have said, so I'm sorry about that, and, and, and two, uh, what our, our popular notions have for hell. And so that's the next thing in your note sheets. The New Testament depicts hell in various ways with suffering in varying degrees. Um, we shouldn't immediately assume that, uh, what's, that there's literally going to be people being incinerated for eternity. Maybe. But then we have to kind of make sense with like how, how that makes sense with there being varying degrees of, of punishment and also issues of darkness. and it, It's not a clear-cut deal. The New Testament is not super exact. It does talk a lot about hell. In fact, uh, 13% of Jesus' teaching involves uh, bad afterlives. Um, so it, it, you know, it's there. It's real. But it's, it's maybe not uh, what you assumed it was, skeptic. Go back to the text. Just got to get this out of the way because, yep, we're, I mean, if we're going to own what the New Testament says, we're going to own uh, what Jesus says, then, yeah, look, uh, Abraham, Jesus is telling the story, but Abraham says there's a great crevice. It's been fixed between us and you. Those who wish to cross over from here to you cannot. Neither can anyone cross from there to us. Um, it's been popular in... Uh, 
here's the deal. So Christians, most of us are uncomfortable with hell. We don't like it. Newsflash. We actually, um, you may be surprised, we're actually sort of into loving people and being compassionate and gracious. Um, for most of us, the idea of like eternal damnation is really uncomfortable. We don't love it. In fact, for the most part, uh, when you go to churches, they won't talk about it anymore because uh, it's just so... Um, and, and part of that uh, is that there's no... Once you're there, you're there. Uh, this isn't like purgatory where um, in the Catholic tradition, purgatory is like something you eventually escape. This is not that. This is uh, something that is forever. Let's own it. This next thing, your note sheets. Uh, New Testament teaches that hell and heaven are forever. Uh, it is true that over and over, descriptions of the afterlife, both good and bad, are um, connected with uh, the word ionos, uh, which is, means eternity or uh, the age. So the age of eternity um, is what it is. Go back to the text. This is so weird. Uh, so, the, so the rich man is now, he's, he's, in, he's in Hades. He's being tormented. He's on fire or something like that. And he says, uh, hey, I need you to send Lazarus uh, to my dad's place to, to tell my brothers. He needs to warn them so they won't come to this agony. Right? He's like, he's like get, get that dude. I know him. He, he's the one that I ignored my entire life. Basically, in a way, he's kind of like being... Uh, yeah, the servant back there, uh, the, the loser that's no good, yeah, could you have him do a, 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 an errand for me? Um, have him go warn my, my family. And the response of Abraham is very fascinating because it's basically this, it would be the same thing as saying like, dude, listen, there are so many signs out there telling you what life ought to be like, who God is, what he's like. It's it's honestly, it's a no-brainer. You've, you've had your entire life, and your brothers have had um, the Old Testament, Moses, the prophets, exactly telling you who God is, what God is like, what God is asking. It's been there your entire life. It, and it's not just that. It's like you're in, in, sometimes our intuitive sense of what's right and wrong, it's been right in front of your face. And, and, dude, if you don't, if that's not enough for you, there's no signs and wonders that are gonna suddenly, like, turn the lights on, okay? That's not, that's not gonna happen. There's no, you know, them seeing, honestly, Lazarus, do they even know who Lazarus is? Like, Lazarus, like, hey, I'm back from the dead. They'd be like, uh huh. Like, how is that gonna help? There's no need for that because built in, these, if you're fundamentally opposed to God's ways, like, what is it that's going to change your mind? And Abraham's saying nothing. You know, rich man, if we went back in time, you know, and, and, we, and we were, someone came to your house and tried to tell you the truth, you'd have laughed him off. You'd have said, I don't care. Do I have a picture next? Yeah. I don't know if you can read it, but there on the left it says veganism. Yeah. I was vegan for one week in college. I had a friend and she showed me those videos of like the, the factory farms torturing the, the chickens. You've seen those. Or like beating the, the, the cows. And I was like, that's awful. She's like, the only thing you can do is just give up all animal byproducts. And I was like, ah, really? Uh, she took me to a vegan restaurant. 
It was called uh, The Golden Dragon, I think. I can't remember. I think it was The Golden Dragon. Anyway, uh, it wasn't bad, honestly. I mean, it, you know, it was okay. Uh, but they were there. That, was, that was all they did was prepare vegan meals. When I tried to do this on my own, I quickly was like, basically, we're just going to have salad for the rest of our lives, like with not even any dressing. It's like, no, that's not going to happen. Uh, and then immediately I began justifying to myself. I was like, you know what? Uh, cows are the dumbest creatures in the universe, and uh, they honestly deserve to die. So um, that's... So, so if you're a Drake fan or a vegan, guess we won't be seeing you next week. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, no, I... Um, but let's just imagine this. Let's imagine that uh, we passed a law, right? And the law is, is that now... Uh, all stores and all restaurants are vegan from now on. Well, I can tell you that within about 16 hours, I would become a criminal taking part in the black market, right? Because I'm not built to live that way. I, I can't do it. It just, I can't. I love the protein. It's so good. So immediately the country, America, would be unfit for Tom. Uh, and presumably all right-thinking people. <laughs> it would be impossible to deal with. It would not be a good place, even though it might be a healthier place, even though it might be um, a, more, a place that's kinder to animals, it would also be a place not for me. Similarly, uh, got a picture of the KKK here. Let's just imagine that a member of the KKK came to our church. Well, that guy's not going to like it here. Why? Because we're diverse. We have people from a lot of different ethnicities and backgrounds. We have rich and poor. We have everybody here, and we're all welcome because we're all one in, in Christ. Right? So if a KKK guy comes to Coast Bible Church, he's going to be like, I'm out of here. These people are awful. If we forced him to stay, he'd be miserable. Because he's a racist, and we're not. Did you notice that this is the craziest thing about this text? It's absolutely mind-boggling. But you have to see it. You have to see it to get your head around this. So let's go back. Let's take a look at, at the, the things that this rich guy says. First, he's like, hey, I need the help to come over here and dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. He's on fire, right? Does that not strike anyone else as like the dumbest request that he could possibly make? What would maybe a more rational request be? Hey, can you let me out of here? <laughs> like, like, it looks pretty good over there. Like, what, why can't, can I come over there, please? Well, then, then no, he's like, he's like, no, send the help to cool my tongue. I'm on fire, but, um, what? Then he does it again. He does it again. Uh, the next one, he's like, he's like, send Lazarus to my dad's house. What? <laughs> no, no, that's a terrible. That's a terrible request. The request should be like, let me go to my dad's house. Right? Like, honestly, who's the dad going to listen to more? Some guy he's never met, some some disabled man that he's never met more, or his son, who he just buried. Huh. What an odd, 
odd thing. What if, this might sound crazy, but what if the rich man's looking over at Lazarus and Abraham and he's like, yeah, nah. This is terrible. That's worse. Well, how would that be possible? Well, what if the afterlife, when God designs it, right? Well, what if it kind of operates according to the way God does things? God, what? He's what? Limitly, limitlessly gracious. Absolutely self-giving to the uttermost. Constantly um, selfless. Always pouring himself out. The Father uh, to the Son. The Son to us. All in the Spirit so that glory goes back to the Father. Uh, God's mercy is endless and he's constantly uh, compassionate. It, what if the rich man hates that? What if that's actually worse? Because his soul is corrupt and it is fundamentally opposed to who God is and what God does. You see, the, the, the character is what? Like, God, God's like, you didn't obey me, you didn't do what I asked you to, so I'm gonna torture you forever. You know, he's like a sadist, right? That's the kind of the caricature of God. Like, ha, 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 you're going down with the demons. What if God's looking and he's like, okay, if that's really what you want, you can have it. I don't endorse everything that uh, C.S. Lewis writes or says, but uh, you have to at some point, you have to read The Great Divorce, where he's kind of trying to imagine um, heaven and hell and how that all works out, because he too is troubled. He's like me. I hate the doctrine of hell. I don't want it. I don't want it. I believe it. I don't like it. Um, he, he's sort of like that. He's trying to make sense of it. And one of the things that, that happens is uh, he, he notes how painful and miserable Heaven is for the denizens of hell. And I think, do I have the Lewis quote? Is that next? Yeah. He says this, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Uh, what this means, I'm committed to. I'm committed to this belief that if there is anything to be saved in you, no matter who you are, if there is a desire, if there is a hope, if, there is a, if you genuinely search for God, I believe he will reveal himself to you. He is not looking to send people to hell. I mean, John 3.17 did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. But at the same time, God is a respecter of us as adults. God does respect our freedom. And it might be the case 
that there are people who look at everything God is and does and say no. And no matter how hard God goes after people, no matter how much he ex- expresses his love, his grace, his trust, his, his, his desire, his compassion, his mercy, no matter how much, they just say no. And at a certain point, God says, okay. And in some bizarre, twisted, malformed, soulish condition, the rich man prefers hell to heaven. Let's go back to the, uh, the objection. The objection is this. Hell is a ridiculous idea from backwards cultures. No loving God could possibly send people into an eternity of misery. Well, I hope you, um, skeptic, I hope you see that maybe there's an alternative way of thinking about this. Not that uh, God's sending people anywhere, but that God's letting people go if they want to. Maybe um, we can see also that, you know, God's not this horrible sadist. There are, like, varying degrees of eternal misery. Hitler does not get the same treatment as your nice agnostic friend, okay? That's not how this works, And so maybe the doctrine of hell is not quite as horrible as you thought it was. Still rough. I'm not going to deny it. I don't like it. But also not nonsensical, not ridiculous, and not illogical. If that's the case, um, I have a challenge. I have challenges here for uh, both Bible church people and for skeptics. So if you're here, you're a Bible church person, you buy into Bible church, um, I think the first thing to, to recognize is hell is real. Uh, we cannot get away from it. I don't love talking about it, but, I mean, it's there. Jesus teaches it. I believe he's honest and true and trustworthy, so I believe it. Um, if that's the case, then we have a serious obligation to be developing relationships and trying to share the good news of Jesus with people. Like, if this is real and it is something that can happen and will happen, like, dude, we should definitely try to... But here's the great news. The great news is not that we, we don't have like this super responsibility, right? Because what the teaching is that there are some people who are just fundamentally opposed to God. And that's what they want. And that's not okay, but not on you. So your job is not to like, you know, hammer, I have, I have so many uh, skeptic, agnostic, atheist friends. And I, I'm not going to sit there and make every conversation like, you've got to believe, say the sentence, fire insurance. Like, uh, that's just not, you know, that's not on me. I, I do need to, I'm responsible to be like, hey, you might want to consider, like, religious things, but, but if they say no, they say no. Number two, uh, how comfortable are we sharing the gospel? Do we know what the gospel is? Can we do it without re- resorting to turn or burn tactics? Uh, every situation is different, but I, in my experience with skeptics, uh, skeptics, especially um, like hardcore atheists or very serious agnostics, when you be like, dude, you got to believe or, or God's going to torture you forever, they're like, mm, cool. Okay? That, that's not a real super effective strategy. Uh, they already think hell is ridiculous. Um, so trying to, trying to frame the gospel in terms of like, you need to do this because I'm worried you're going to you know, burn forever, that is not usually very effective. In some cases it is. There are people who you know, recognize that they are messed up and that they kind of deserve to be punished forever, in which case, great. 
But typically, we need to have different ways of inviting people into religious sensibility. Um, and I, I would say, from my experience, it's more effective to tell people, uh, first have a relationship with them, and then to tell them, you know, hey, God has a different way of doing stuff, and you should check it out. Rather than, like, immediately going to, if you don't say it's prayer today, you're going to go to hell. Um, that said, sometimes the Spirit moves, and you got to say, hey, you need to pray the prayer today because you're headed to hell. What happens? I'll, I'll deny it. Last. Uh, one of the toughest things uh, as a pastor is when um, I meet somebody who has, like, a spouse who's, um, like, rejects faith, uh, at least outwardly. It gets even worse when uh, that spouse dies and, um, and there's a widow, male or female. Because a lot of times um, Christians get very, very, by recognizing that hell is real, we can get really focused on it, especially if we imagine that somebody that we love is, you know, there. A couple of things. Number one, um, you know, no. You do not know where anybody is. You have no idea what happens in hearts. And men, you've got to remember how gracious and good God is. There is, no, there is no way that we can express God's graciousness and his love more than to say, he came, he died for us. That's the God who chases and pursues us no matter what. You don't know what's happened in someone's heart. You don't know what's happened to transpire between them and God. You don't know those things. So, so don't. And, and moreover, like it's, if that's their choice, then respect it. You've got to respect. If someone says no to God, okay. It's, that's their prerogative. That's their choice. And you don't have to imagine that um, that's not what they want. It is. And yeah, that's, that's not what we want, but if they're, truly, um, if they're truly meant for hell, then hell would be better for them than heaven. That's a weird thing to say, but it's true. Uh, challenge for uh, skeptics. Number one, just because we don't like something or it makes us uncomfortable or seems unfair doesn't mean it isn't real. Skeptic, here's the deal. So when I was growing up, and they don't do this anymore, especially if you're like a millennial skeptic, like no one ever told you that you were wrong, and no one ever told you that, um, you know, life's not fair. That was my dad's favorite phrase growing up. I would be like, Dad, there's only, I was an only child, there's no one to help me with the chores. He's like, life's not fair, right? Um, Dad, I don't, I'm tired and I want to keep sleeping. Life's not fair. Uh, Dad, I mean, over, honestly, he would just look at me, and before I even spoke, life's not fair, like, Got it. Um, but that, that kind of builds in a way of thinking about the world where we recognize that just because we don't like something, I don't like cancer. Cancer's real. You don't like hell. Hell is real. Number two, skeptic, here's the deal. If the God of the Bible is real, 
then hell is real. And you have some very deep soul-searching to undertake. It, the stakes can't be higher. This is it. Like, this is as, as, as real as it gets. You, you owe it to yourself to take the time to really decide whether or not there is a God and whether or not, and how that God operates, and whether or not you were opposed. You, Last. For those um, who just... Skeptic, doesn't it make sense? Doesn't that seem like... I mean, God, let's just imagine God's this God who's always reaching out. That's what Christians say. He's always gracious. He's always looking for us, always trying to save us, right? Well, if someone says no, does it not make sense for God to say okay, I tried. I want to end with this. Um, Don't love hell. Don't love talking about it. Um, What I love talking about is grace. And that's where my heart is, and that's honestly where God's heart is. If you're a skeptic and you're wondering who God is and what God's like, ultimately when you bury all the way down, you get to God's beating heart. That heart beats with endless, gracious love. And that's who God is. That's what God wants for people. That's what he wants for you. God is after you. And he wants you to become like him. He wants you to start reorienting your life so that you too are in love with self-giving love. That you too are in love with grace. That you too are in love with joy with peace, the real versions of those things. He wants that for you. And honestly, that's best for you. Don't, don't, don't walk away from faith because you're concerned about hell. Instead, walk into church and walk into life with us because what ultimately we're about is grace. And that's ultimately what God's about. And if that tugs at your heart, that's who God is. And he wants you Let's pray. Gracious God, we um, confess ultimately that you are good. God, we don't understand um, everything. It's hard to make sense. Uh, And yet, God, uh, we we believe that that you're just, that you're merciful, and that you really are gracious and you really do love. God, I pray um, that anyone who's here who comes from a skeptical perspective um, would at least see that there's a possibility Um, that you, a loving, good, gracious God, could allow people um, to walk away. God, for uh, those here who are Christian, I just pray that we will be responsible and and that we'll be motivated to share uh, with our friends, family, neighbors, in in whatever way uh, we need to in order to um, bring your good news uh, and your life to them not out of a sense of of fear and not out of a sense of obligation, but out of a sense of joy, knowing um, that that the stakes are real and that that you are real and you're good and you're worth it. Most of all, God, I just ask um, for peace in the hearts of those um, who worry over much about eternal destiny, that um, that they'll just rest in your grace, rest knowing that that you're good and, and you always are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.